Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! Jay, good afternoon. How are you today, pal? Okay? Hey, Chris. How are you? Everybody's hanging in there. Thank you. You you got it. Uh, first off, I did not realize uh, the origins of the two of you being so close. I'm sure it just didn't happen by accident. It was the fact that, you know, you both worked there at the end uh, at ESPN. I'm not sure if you knew him when Bobby was still coaching. So talk about that for a sec. Go ahead. Let yeah, me no, it happened. It happened way before ESPN. In fact, I, I was uh, I was with him when he uh, quit at Texas Tech. And, uh, and I actually was uh, sort of helping both sides of getting him to ESPN. Um, but I met Coach Knight when I was in college. You know, he, uh, Coach K, my coach at Duke, played for Coach Knight uh, at Indiana. And he spoke to our team uh, on more than one occasion and uh, got to know him there and then knew, uh, knew him at Indiana when I first started broadcasting. Um, and then we started going on golf trips together when he got to Texas Tech. Uh, we did... I don't know, five or six of them uh, went to Scotland and Ireland twice each. And uh, I remember him calling me after doing those trips. And he says, what do you say we stay in the United States this summer? <laughs> that'd that'd yeah. be great. I, you know, because I was thinking band and dunes or, you know, whistling straights. And he goes, I'm thinking North Dakota. I'm like, what? And we wound up going to North Dakota for a week and played 36 holes a day for a week. And we had a blast all through the Badlands and Oh. That was great. So he uh, he surprised me there. Very much so. Did he recruit you out of L.A. there, Jay, when you were a senior in high school there in the late 70s? Did he recruit you at all? He did not. Um, I, I met him through Coach K. Uh, he didn't recruit out west back then. I think one of the first California guys he ever recruited was Joe Hillman, which was well after me. Um, but he uh, uh, he did tell me one time, he almost took the, he said that he almost took the Arizona job uh, before Lute Olson took it and claimed that he was going to recruit me and Mark Allery out of the West Coast. And But if he had recruited me, he would have spent the whole four years screaming at me. Yes. Now, the impressions of a young Dookie in the early 80s, I know Knight's reputation and his, you know, his tough, rough tactics with his, with his players, because he berated him a lot, would that have turned you off? Would that have turned off the young... Now, listen, now you can't do that. Back then, you could. Would it have turned you off if, in fact... Now, you had Krzyzewski, who yelled with probably a little calmer disposition than Bobby did, but would that have turned you off to play for night back in 1978, 79? I don't think so. No, I came out of high school in 82, 82. Um, and it would not have turned me off. In fact, it never occurred to me that to even worry about it when I played for Coach K that he had, he had learned under Bob Knight. He played for him. He coached a year at Indiana in 1975, that great team they had that lost to Kentucky and, you know, it was like 30 and one. Um, it, it, it never that never would have occurred to me. Uh, it would have occurred to me after, but uh, but not before. Uh, did uh, was the did the kids who played at that time, Jay? You, for instance, who was a big college player, um, you know, Knight was developing that gruff personality. The '84 Olympics, he thought it was his team, not the United States teams. I'm not sure when those Pan American Games occurred when he got mad at the janitor. Uh, that was '79. '79 when he got mad. Did did Knight? personality did when you guys players talked about it was it grading or did you even know back then you know what you got to put up with him but if you do put up with him he's going to teach you a lot about basketball how was his personality how did it outweigh his coaching ability when you were playing in the early 80s let me get your thoughts on that i don't think it was as big of an issue in the 70s and 80s as it became in later years when he 
you know, started wearing the pullover and, and was graying. Um, and, and it got a lot more pronounced. Um, that wasn't an issue. At least I don't recall it being one. I mean, you, you knew that there was some volatility here and there, but, uh, but you saw, still saw the same brilliance. Like that, that's one of the things, Chris, like he was truly brilliant. And I'm not just using that word, you know, like you'd use great. He was brilliant. And, you know, I had the chance to watch film with him a lot when he was at Texas Tech. I was there quite a bit. And, uh, and you'd, you'd watch film with him. And, you know, you think you know something about basketball, and I think I do. But, you know, he'd point out these nuances in the game. You're going, I can't believe I missed that. And, uh, or I didn't see that myself. He just had an acumen for the game that was like few others. And he was the best teacher of the game I ever saw on the floor. That he could get in and out of teaching situations in a practice without uh, action stopping and without turning it into a basketball clinic for coaches, which a lot of coaches do, and it's not necessarily negative, but he just did it better. And he—you he, he, probably heard him say this. You know, there was a swimming great Hall of Fame swimming coach at Indiana named Doc Councilman, and Knight used to say that Doc Councilman could coach any sport and be great. And I truly believe that about Bob Knight—that he could have coached any sport. And he would have been just as great. Tell him about the um, uh, the practice plan that he didn't have, and he let the players think they were getting away with stuff when, in fact, he didn't care. You wrote about that today. I thought that was very interesting. Give him that little story. Go ahead. Well, it, it wasn't the not care thing. So he he would he would uh, write his practice plan out on note cards, and he would keep it in his pocket. And a lot of coaches have their practice plans written out. Every assistant has one. They keep one. You know the scores table at practice. All the players know what's coming throughout the practice, and he didn't. He didn't like that. He didn't want the players knowing what was coming because he didn't want them to try to pace themselves through practice. Uh, he wanted to pace them, and so it was. It was really a, a, an interesting way to do it. And you know, people thought he was volatile all the time. He really wasn't. You know, you watch those old games. Now they're old, but you watch those games that he coached in. Now, when he blew up an official or a player, he blew up, but. The overwhelming majority of the time, he was just coaching and watching and, and observing and, and, and teaching. Um, and he had a great demeanor for the most part in practice, um, at least when I was there. Uh, look, there are things, you know this better, better than anybody, there are things he didn't said that I can't excuse, I can't justify, I can't rationalize. And he and I disagreed on certain things. But overall, um, the good outweighed the bad. Uh, by three to one. I agree and, with that. I agree with that. But I don't. I don't argue with people that didn't like him. Like I'm not going to argue with somebody that says, you know what, he was this, he was that. My only problem came with friends of mine who didn't like him. They would question why I did, and that's where I got. I got kind of tired of that about 20 years ago. So like I'm not even dealing with this anymore. If you don't like him, you don't like him. Quit questioning me about why I do. Hmm. Uh, what's the one thing that he has done over, you know, whether it's throwing a chair or the Neil Reed thing or, you know, the Indiana uh, split, the Shashevsky? What's the one thing that you think he took to literally his grave that he regretted? The, the relationship with Coach K that he didn't handle that better. Um, he and I got sideways over that. Um, it was just wrong. And look, I get it that there are things that when people don't communicate the right way and you have a perceived slight that you let spiral, things can get get crazy. Uh, but Bob Knight had this one, you know, he had a number of flaws. But the one that I think stood out above all others to me personally, knowing the way I knew him, 
was he, he just he wasn't capable of saying I'm sorry. And his way of saying he was sorry would be the next time he saw you after any rift you would have, he'd put his arm around you, make a joke or something like that. And, and so you give the idea that you're kind of back in the fold. And but that's not the same as acknowledging, hey, I'm sorry. And he wasn't capable of that for some reason. But, you know, what what happened with Coach K, it, I'm going to leave all that to Coach K to talk about if he wants to or not. That's his relationship. But those around it, myself included, saw it, did not care for it. And uh, and Knight knew it. Knight knew I didn't care for it. And, uh, and it caused a problem between us. And uh, you said if he asked you about how's Mike doing, they were going well. And if he said how's Shashevsky, it wasn't going so well. Isn't that correct? First name, last name? Yeah, I could kind of tell when things were a little sideways. You know, he wouldn't – it's not like he asked all the time, but, you know, at the end of a conversation we'd have, if things – if I knew things were in a good place, he'd always say, hey, if you talk to Mike, like, well, you know, how's Mike doing? And uh, and if it wasn't going well, he he wouldn't say she, she, he would call him Kershevsky, you know, with, with the K. And I could tell, uh oh, you know, just <laughs> to be annoying. Apparently, aren't going well. Yeah. I don't know whether it's just to be annoying, honestly, because look, Chris, I, I don't want to um, mischaracterize that. Like he loved Coach K, and Coach K loved him. Um, it, it was just this weird. I don't know even how to describe it because none of it made any sense. I know he was proud of him. Um, and, and Coach K revered Coach Knight. It was just one of those weird things that, you know, at some point it becomes a little bit unhealthy, and, uh, and that, that's what bothered me. Like, it was – I wanted for Coach K, for him to have – for Coach Knight to be the same for Coach K as Coach K was to, to all of us that played for him. And I think for, for too many years it wasn't that way. And that, that could be – that was I – know, I know that was really hurtful. Hmm, fair enough. Uh, the Listen, I thought the book was great, and even after I read it, I said, you know, he's got foibles, and he'd be a pain in the neck, but if I had a kid who was good enough, I definitely wanted him to go play at Indiana. But I know that book, you know, he felt that that book cast him in a poor light, season on a brink, the Feinstein book in 1987. Shed some light on that if you can, Jay. Go ahead. You know, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. Um, I've talked to John about it. I think, you know, knowing John and what a great writer he is, and especially at that time, the access that he had, um, I think Coach Knight, in the things that he told me, he was upset that that he thought a few things were going to be off limits, that somehow some of the cursing would be toned down that wasn't, according to Knight. Um, and that uh, he, he was told some of the money would go to some cause or something, uh, or he said he was, and then uh, he, he thought his marriage, uh, his first marriage to his first wife Nancy, was going to be off limits. And uh, and but I don't I don't know that any of that was right. I mean, look, it's not that I don't trust Bob Knight, but I trust John Feinstein. And uh, and who knows where the the truth lies in that thing? But I trust John. Do you agree that that uh, I actually thought it, I thought it was a very fair portrayal, and I think it actually made you know there was a lot of great things about that book that made Knight look great, and I think he got a little too wrapped up in the other stuff. What's your take with that? I think that's probably true. I just I, I don't know. I mean, he and I didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but it was touched upon uh, over the last twenty years from time to time. 20-some years, whatever it is. Um, it wasn't a big topic. But, uh, but that's sort of the thing, Chris. Like, there, there could be things that would, he would find as a perceived slight that, you know, most other people wouldn't it'd roll off their back and wouldn't bother them. And, 
you know, sometimes he could be slighted, and the person that the, the perceived slight, the person that that did it, wouldn't even know for a, for a period of time, and they wouldn't know like what is what's wrong. Um, and that was a that was a flaw, um, and you know nobody benefits from that kind of thing. Uh, the loss, and uh, Bob Hammer wrote about this. People don't realize how great that first team was. You and I are old enough to remember it when Scott May broke his wrist. They lost to Kentucky. That was Wooden's last year, and they may have beaten Indiana. Would have beaten. Uh, he wouldn't have won. He would have won nine championships, not ten, because they would have beaten UCLA in that final. And that's a loss that it sounds like still to this day, very day, irked Bobby more than anything else that he lost to one game in those two years and that one game to Kentucky if he had made they probably would have won what's your take with that let me hear yeah I think I think there were a few over the years that uh you know how it is with uh with coaches players you know sometimes the one that gets away in a given year sticks with you longer um you know there are countless times you may have lost in the first round that maybe you should have lost in the second round that doesn't bother you as much the ones where you really have a chance and maybe should have so that 1975 team had the same players as the 1976 undefeated team, but also had Steve Green and John Laskowski. And Scott May broke his arm at the end of the season and wound up playing against Kentucky with a, this kind of bizarre wrap around his arm, and he couldn't, he couldn't really play. And they couldn't play him for very long. It screwed everything up. And they wound up getting clipped by a team that they had dominated earlier in the season. So, you know, who knows? But that would have been two straight undefeated years. And, uh, and you know, still 76 is the last undefeated men's college basketball team. That says something about how, how great they were that it hasn't been accomplished since. Uh, do you think that, um, you know, he never – the only – the real great player he had was Isaiah, the great player. Do you think the way he coached and the way he – the kind of kid that he got, that he just was not – no, he had Jordan in the Olympics, but I'm not counting that. The great player he had was the Isaiah for the two years. Do you think that his coaching style prohibited sort of the growth of the great player within that system? Your thoughts on that? It didn't prohibit growth. I think it might have led to not getting quite as many of the the truly top future NBA players because um, he did have a, you know Calvert Chaney, name Steve Alford, had a bunch of great players, a bunch of players that played in the NBA. You know Randy Whitman and and Ted Kitchell and Mike Woodson, all these guys. There there were so many of them, but. You know, it wasn't like he had lottery pick after lottery pick or number one pick. You know, Kent Benson was number one pick, I think, in 77. Um, but that was back when, you know, big guys were valued in a different way. And I think if they redid that draft, it, he wouldn't have been number one. But um, yeah, I, I tend to think, Chris, that he was one of those guys. You, you've heard this expression, you know, old old time expression that, you know, he could beat he could beat uh, yours with his, yes. and he could beat his with yours. Right. And and I do feel that way about Coach Knight. That when he went to Texas Tech, you know, he resurrected that program, took him to a Sweet Sixteen, and he didn't really have the players to do that. And his big regret at Texas Tech was after they went to the Sweet Sixteen, he thought that that was going to energize basketball in that area, and he felt like it didn't. And they kind of lost the momentum. They're still really good. But he thought, okay, this could lead to Final Four, a contender for a title, that kind of thing. And it, it just didn't. And uh, after he reached 900 and, you know, broke, uh, broke the record, broke Dean Smith's record, um, you know, he, uh, that, that's when he packed it in. He just had enough. Uh, do you think, listen, you and I might understand that he ever reckons, he never reconciled himself to the departure of Indiana. Now, I don't blame Brand. They had to do something. He was there a long time. I think he kind of wore out his welcome a bit, but he would never accept that, correct? 
Well, th- this is kind of Chris where my sort of amateur, you know, psychology diagnosis of that. Um, I think I wrote about it that in 2009 was the first time that Bob Knight was back in a in an arena with Indiana since he got fired in 2000. And I was there with him. I was doing the game, Indiana versus Pitt. And, uh, and I think I detailed the story. We stuck around the next day, he and I, to watch Kentucky play UConn. And it was John Calipari's first year. And he had he had kind of sought my I don't want to say advice, but hey, what do you think about this? He goes, I think I really screwed up with Tony Larusa last night. And Larusa had called him the night before after the Indiana upset over Pitt and said, I hope you go unite, go into the locker room, the Indiana locker room, and congratulate him. And he's like, No, Tony, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not going to take away the spotlight from them because that would make it all about me. Like I'm not doing that. And, and he said, and, and LaRusa pressed him. Knight told me he pressed him and said, you need to be the bigger man. And that kind of set Knight off. And he started yelling at LaRusa and said, and, and he told me, and he got teary eyed when he recounted the story and said, Tony, I'm not over it. I don't think I'll ever be over it. And, uh, and, you know, he, he wanted to know, should I call LaRusa? What should I do? And, and I was told they didn't talk for a few months after that. And then we were able to patch it up later, but that led me to kind of understand at least my belief that you know, he wasn't angry at Indiana. He was, he was genuinely hurt emotionally by being let go that way. And, and, you know, he wound up going back later on and, and living in Bloomington um, when he started to decline cognitively his wife Karen took him back, um, but uh, it, it was a like he's re- he was really emotional and he was quick to kind of tear up on certain issues. It didn't seem like it, and I think he masked it with anger uh, or what what manifested itself as anger. But I I really believe, and and I may be alone in this. I, I've never really you know ran it by anybody to see if if this is right. But I really think he was emotionally hurt by getting fired more than angry. Hmm. Boy, Jay Butler's doing a great job here. I'll let him go in a minute. I can't keep him forever. Uh, talk about his um, relationship with the older coach, Clay B., Pete Newell, uh, you know, Hank Iba. He had a, I know he took all those coaches on a big tour with Indiana basketball one summer because they had just lost their wives and he wanted to get them out uh, from where they were in the summertime. But he was very, very good to the old coach. How come? Why was he? Why did that mean so much to him? I think I think you're right. I, I think that, that whether it was Claire B or Henry Iba, Pete Newell, he had a, a reverence for uh, coaches that came before him and that were older, and he got along great with them. He, he you know, they were all involved in the uh, in the '84 Olympics. Um, you know, he had Henry Iba uh, with him as a special assistant, and that's one of. One of the reasons was because of what happened to Iba in 72, you know, when uh, when the U.S. lost to the Russians and, and you know, kind of cheated out of the gold medal in Munich. Um, and and he and Pete Newell kind of came up with uh, with his version of motion offense together. Um, and, you know, Newell won the national championship in 1959 with uh, Cal Berkeley and then uh, – and then Ohio State with Bob Knight and, and Jerry Lucas and John Havlicek, Larry Sigfried won it over Newell's team in 1960. They were great, great friends. And um, uh, I think he had this, this incredible reverence for, for people that had been there before and wanted to honor that. And even, uh, even Chris with his, his old coach, Fred Taylor. So Fred Taylor was a head coach at, uh, at Ohio State when Knight played there. And when Coach Taylor was, was passing, when he was ill in the hospital and, and, and had very little time left, 
Coach Knight used to used to go into the hospital after hours at night and sit in the hospital with Coach Taylor and hold his hand. And he, he the truth is, he didn't want anybody to know that while while he was alive. And uh, uh, you know, he would not have been happy if I had told that story while he was still living. But um, but it, it kind of shows that he was he was capable of incredible acts of of kindness and thoughtfulness. And then, you know, on the flip side, he's also capable of, of being thoughtless and, uh, and, and doing some things that you, uh, you might classify as, as getting toward cruel because he did do some of those things. And I can't explain it. I can't explain those, those negatives, and I can't uh, rationalize it, and I can't excuse it. But uh, I just, I've always felt in my relationship with him that I felt like the good far outweighed the bad. I think most of his players feel that way. Not all of them. I mean, there there there's some that didn't care for him at all. But but uh, the overwhelming majority, I think, revered him. And uh, and you know, I mean, I remember a number of different guys saying that that boy, it was common to hear around the Indiana program the older players telling the young ones, "Don't listen to how he's saying it. Listen to what he's saying. Absolutely. And because what he's saying is right. Don't listen to the how." And, you know, I know you probably know this. You know, he almost took that CBS job when they got the rights to the NCAA tournament as their lead analyst and didn't take it because Langdon Turner had that car accident. Now, I mean, and he said, I can't leave Indiana right now, and I got a player on my team who's, par- who's, 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 who's in a wheelchair, and he didn't take the job. So there are a lot of those kinds of stories about Knight that he didn't want anybody to know. His kids always graduated, never heard any scandal, and he won three times. I mean, I don't know. Now, he was, he was, he was a bore at times, as you just said, but I, as you said, I do think the good outweighs the bad. And last thing, I think when you're talking about the great coaches, and I can't go back to 1940, I mean, so I can't go back to Nat Holman in the early 50s at CCNY. I'm going to leave B out of it, even to a degree Branch McCracken with the Hurry and Hoosiers. But if you're looking at the great coaches, I mean, you're talking Wooden, Knight, Krzyzewski. Uh, I mean, you want to put Calhoun in there because he turned around Connecticut and won three times? He's probably not on that level. But I, I don't know where you're going outside of those. Where else are you going besides those three? You tell me. All time. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, you know, we we live in a, a world that counts championships, and so you know the the three, which could have been been more in my view, and you you chronicled a few of them. Um, as far as influence is concerned, um, you know, I put Dean Smith up. Oh, there that's myself, right. I got to put Dean. I forgot about Dean. Absolutely, that's four. Hundred percent. But if you, to me, um, it, you know, if you go by influence especially in the 70s, 80s, into, I'd say, the mid-90s, there was no more influential coach in the game on the planet. I'm not just saying college basketball. I'm saying on the planet than Bob Knight. None. And, you know, everybody sought his advice and counsel. And uh, he, he, he was ruling the game. And, uh, you know, how innovative he was, what a great teacher. And he was very open, even though his practices were closed, to media and all that stuff, he was incredibly open with other coaches. He shared information, and he thought it was his responsibility to speak at clinics and teach. And there was nothing secret about his motion offense or the way they played defense or game planning, all that stuff. Um, uh, he was uh, he was remarkable in that regard. I've never, honestly, never seen his equal as a teacher. And and I'm not I'm not sure, Chris, that he wasn't the the, the most intelligent coach that I've ever come across. It's just that that came with a, a, a price, and uh, and with with Bob Knight, the price was high, 
Um, but the reward was uh, was high as well. Could you imagine if Bird was a little more mature and he realized what he had in Bird if Bird had played four years in Indiana? He actually talked about that with me. Um, I'm sure he talked about it with a bunch of people. We, we talked about that uh, a number of times, and he felt like he had screwed up there, that he should have been more welcoming and more tolerant of, of the things Bird was going through. But he said at that time, you know, he just wasn't willing to – to kind of accept or go out of his way for somebody he felt was uh, was not you know in the mainstream of what they what they expected and wanted to do, and uh, and it's true. Look what they missed, but at the same time, who knows? It was probably better for Larry Bird to be at Indiana State. It was a, a smaller uh, place for him, and and obviously, look what happened. But uh, could you imagine that combination? And uh, well, that's uh, the smartest. I mean, that's the, that's one of the smartest players in the history of the sport. And you just mentioned that that's the smartest coach in the history of college basketball. And Bird played four years. So if you put yeah. Bird and that Indiana team after they won in '76, they had a little bit of a falling off. You know, Woodson was great, but had a little bit of a falling off. If you put Bird on that team, he would have two more. They would have won two more championships for crying out loud. Think about it. Oh, you would you would think so. I mean, who who you know the the possibilities are, are kind of delicious to think about. But he certainly would have learned a new vocabulary earlier. <laughs> Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.